Between the kids being home and hosting, everything in our house gets used up in summer. With Instacart, I can save money by stocking up on all my favorite summer brands. I save time by getting everything delivered in as fast as an hour. And I save myself a sink full of dirty dishes by stocking up on paper plates for the annual summer cookout. Save more on summer essentials? Spend more time enjoying summer. Add summer to cart. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome back to the Final Four is not on the schedule. He is Rod, I am Cameron, and we are back. Rod, it's March, Michigan, back-to-back to end the season. Um, I, I, you really couldn't ask for a more dramatic end to this season. Um, but before we get into Michigan, uh, I know some people are have been seeing some news around, have been freaking out a little bit about uh, Imani Bates. Um, what can you tell us about what you know uh, about the Imani Bates situation at this point? Yeah, uh, so it stems from an article that Brendan Quinn wrote for The Athletic. And on balance, it's not a terrible article. There were parts that I thought uh, were interesting because it was an in-depth look at with his father, among other people, but a lot of it had to do with Elgin Bates, Imani's dad, and how the decision to create Ipsy Prep came about and what went into that, the mechanics of becoming NCAA certified, you know, all of those, how the academics worked, the whole thing. Um, and they had to, they had to switch horses in, in midstream in that process to make thing work academically. There were some plans they had had earlier that weren't able to come to fruition, so they had to switch gears. But it, it was interesting from that perspective. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think Quinn is a, a very good writer. I think he's very I think he's a good storyteller. Um, I think that sometimes basketball acumen is – it's not consistently great. <laughs> Let's put it. It's okay. But as a writer, I think he's very talented. Um, the problem is there was a paragraph story where Quinn said nobody he had talked to in the what it was inside or outside the Bates camp, quote unquote, thinks that Amani is going to spend a year at Michigan State. Some of some of the story was also about how the commitment to Michigan State came about in the first place that it caught everybody, including MSU, by surprise. That's that's true. His announcement of it caught them by surprise. Uh-huh. The fact that he did commit to Michigan State at one point or another shouldn't have surprised anybody. Mm-hmm. But that part, that my, that's my understanding, is that was accurate. So he had this paragraph. Now, I'm going to tell you, um, it, it, I do not believe that Brendan Quinn has good sources 
or any sources would mean anything in this. I, I really don't believe that. Um, if you know anything about this, there's no way in hell that one of his sources was Elgin Bates. Elgin Bates, the only direct quote in there from him, he talks about how Imani picked Michigan State because they showed him love, they've shown him attention, they've shown him they care about him all along, and he feels about them. And when the time comes, if Imani wants to play at Michigan State, that's what he's going to He's He's being dad in that scenario. He's not trying to direct any choice. Mm-hmm. That's all he's – I know, for, I, I bet the world – that that Elgin Bates nor Imani Bates told Brendan Quinn anything. And here's the deal. I had a, a poster on the Spartan Mag board who is really good and knows people um, said that they made the comment that um, the Bates circle is extremely tight and extremely small. And there are people who think they're in it who aren't. Mm-hmm. Those are the people who think he probably heard from. Um, you know, I, I know some, I hear things from people from time to time. Those who listen to this podcast know that I was not surprised that Imani Bates committed to Michigan State. I felt that it was more likely than not that he would play a year at Michigan State going back to his freshman year of high school. Mm-hmm. Been talking about it. And, you know, the world said no. Then he commits, and the world still doesn't want to believe. Anyway, in fairness to Quinn, that paragraph was not the focus of his article. It wasn't the point he wrote it. And then, but it was taken out of context and run with by these news aggregator sites, the bleacher reports of the world. And so all over today, you had these stories with screaming headlines. Imani Bates considered highly unlikely or unlikely to play at Michigan State. Mm-hmm. Imani responded with a post of himself, an edit, as they call them, a, with a photo of him in a, a Photoshop Michigan State jersey, the kind that you see recruiting announcements made with, saying, essentially, if you don't hear it from me, it doesn't mean anything. Okay. That's a pretty strong statement. That's a relief. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm going to tell you this for, for those who, which is probably everybody who listens to this, who is, you know, following this story and, you know, they ride the rapids of these and they saw some of these headlines and were depressed about it. I don't know what he's going to do. Nobody does outside of that very, very tight circle for sure. All I can tell you is there's a combination of things that I have heard all along and what I know facts, which by the way, very rarely get dealt with in these articles. And Quinn to his discredit didn't deal with any of the facts either. And I'll get into those in a second. These articles never seem to these people who think that he's going to play professionally somewhere. They never deal with the facts. Mm. Um, but the combination of knowing that stuff and hearing the things I hear have led me all along to believe he is more likely than not to play at Michigan State. That has not changed. As a matter of fact, this very week, the couple of days before today, Monday and Tuesday, I heard from two separate people I know who know people in the basketball community who, independent of each other, have heard from people who are high school coaches in Michigan 
So people who are in the basketball community and hear things that both of those people that they talk to, uh, both of whom are well-known, I'm not going to identify who they were. Um, in one case, I don't even know um, for certain. Uh, both said that they believe Amani's going to play at Michigan State next year. Um, I believe that's more likely than not to be the case when all is said and done. Mm-hmm. Here's why. Just to remind people, I know we've talked about this before, but every time one of these stories circulates, I do feel the need to put the facts into the story. All right. As it stands right now, Imani Bates for sure isn't eligible to play in the NBA next year. So that's off the table, right? Yeah. Um, so he would have the following options. He could play at Ypsilanti Prep. I've talked to or seen no one who believes that's likely to happen. It seems to be a consensus view. This is his final year playing at the high school prep level. Okay, so we can probably dispense with that. What can he do? He could play at Michigan State next year. Committed to Michigan State. So that's a that's an option. Mm. A second option, theoretically, or so people think, is he could play in the G League. You know, the G League introduced its program where they're paying guys to guys that they made invitations to, so they kind of have to offer you the opportunity to play, and you can get an elevated salary from what it was before for guys straight out of high school. Um, it's gotten into the low six-figure range now, I believe. Um, and you play with this Ignite team that's not really part of the G League. They play what are kind of glorified AAU games against other G League teams, but it's not a full schedule there's a lot of training involved, et cetera. Here's the problem, and this is the, the bit that none of these people ever deal with. As it stands, Imani Bates would not be eligible for that program next year. Why? Because he's not old enough. The mm-hmm. rules state you have to have finished high school and capital A, capital N, capital D, you must be 18 years of old during the calendar year when you start play there. Imani Bates will not turn 18 until January of 2022. So the season would start in the fall of this year, of 21. He's not going to be old enough. So what does that mean? Well, that means that the NBA has to change a rule. Okay? At minimum, they got to do that. For those who think that's an easy thing to do, I want you to consider this. The age limitation in that rule is not just there by happenstance. I don't believe that. If you want to believe that, you're welcome to. I don't. There's a reason for it. And one of the reasons I think the primary driver of that is the NBA is not really interested in doing things that would accelerate younger and younger kids to leave school and get into the professional ranks. There are already concerns about guys who haven't done a year of college, right? That's why they haven't removed one and done, despite all predictions it would happen. Hadn't happened yet. Doesn't look like it's going to happen for a while. So now I'm supposed to believe that they're just going to, at the snap of a finger, decide that they want to essentially accelerate guys who have just ended their junior year of high school into becoming professional, because that's what it would be. 
And if you think that they would make that exception for Amani Bates and no one else, I got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. The first time it happens, it will open the door to that. Now, they have to make invitations. It's not like any kid could just declare and be in, that you've got to have the, the program decide they want to take you. But it's still a problem. Mm-hmm. The whole reason that one and done was instituted is that the NBA, the owners, believed they couldn't help themselves. When high school guys were eligible and were declaring for the draft, they they were also terrified of missing the next Kevin Garnett, the next Kobe Bryant, that they couldn't help themselves but draft these kids, and then they would regret it. So the, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons they instituted that rule was to save them from themselves. It's a similar kind of thing here, I believe. If you open the door to Imani Bates, you are going to do it again. And you are very quickly getting on a slippery slope of being accurately portrayed as encouraging 16-year-olds to turn professional. Mm-hmm. Or 17-year-olds. I don't think that's a business the NBA wants to be in. And, and if they do decide they will, they want to, they're not going to do it lightly and they're not going to do it easily. So I am very skeptical that that happens. Additionally, I had heard last summer that if the NBA changed its mind and was going to let guys go direct to the draft, that would be a game changer. Imani Bates would go. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But he has said publicly he's not particularly enamored of the G League option, doesn't think it's for him. And I had heard that the only way it would even be considered is if he was going to be paid essentially the equivalent of a a highly drafted, you know, a lottery pick rookie salary. Well, that's multiples beyond what they're currently doing. Mm -hmm. With these guys, the Greens and the Kamingas and these guys that are currently with the Ignite, it's it's multiples of what those guys are making. And I don't think that's likely either, that the NBA is going to change change it up for Imani Bates because it creates a precedent. Yeah. And and I just don't see it. And if you're in the NBA, is it in your interest to have Imani Bates playing a year in college? Yeah. In a lot of ways, it is. We, we go to, I talked last summer and before that about the branding value that a, a truly generational talent like Imani Bates would have playing in college in games that people actually watch, the Zion Williamson effect, mm-hmm. right? None of these guys coming out of the G League program, there's a couple of them that are projected top five picks still. Although I would note the guy who's projected number one is Kate Cunningham who's playing at Oklahoma State. Um, but none of those guys are coming in with any real serious fan awareness um, other than among deep hoop head types. Yeah. You know? I, if you look, imagine like what almost everyone in the sports world knows exactly what's going on with the story with Jalen Johnson. You know, it's just an example of somebody right. Right. compared to like how, what percentage of, of sports people, Nike brand people have any clue how many points a game Isaiah Todd's getting, you know? Right. It's like 10, 10 points. Exactly. I just looked it up. I, I had no idea how these guys were doing. I'd never even heard right. a single thing. 10, 10 points and four rebounds for Isaiah Todd. Right. You In know? games that, that <laughs> you have to wonder about the competitiveness anyway. Yeah. I, I, I just hadn't heard a thing about it. Right. And, and, and this is, this is the, the missing link in this whole G league equation 
Um, look, I don't, I don't fault the NBA for instituting the program. I think for a lot of guys, it makes sense. They're not interested in school. They can go get training and learn and play some games and develop. And if they don't want to play and they don't want to go to school, fine. That's great. You know, it, it's a legitimate alternative and it means they don't have to go overseas and play in Australia or Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, for a kid like Amani Bates, I, I just don't see why it makes sense. So there's a few different things. If that's going to happen, the NBA's first got to decide you got to change. They're going to change the age rule. Could they do that? Yes. Will they do that? Eh. I get very skeptical about that. And, and that's the thing that none of these people who talk so easily about believing that he's not going to end up playing a year in college never deal with. I never see it. I never see it addressed. I never see anybody talk about it. It's just apparently a wand's going to wave and make mm-hmm. this stuff happen. I don't believe that. I don't believe it's there just as happenstance, though the age requirement. And it's going to have to move. And nobody's got an answer as to how that happens or why it would happen. Yeah. You know, so that including Brendan Quinn, he, he didn't have anything. He didn't address any of that. He just summed it up in one paragraph. Most of the people he talked to, whoever they were, and I think it was a lot of the people who were spoken to in the article other than Elgin Bates, who frankly are people I don't think know what's up. Um, they think he's going to play pro well my question is how with all these facts that i've just raised and then as i say the other thing is my understanding is they look at the financial situation very differently than a lot of other people do um that to do that it would need to be really worth their while so then your other two options are he could go overseas and play the way that, you know, we, we've seen the ball kid this year have a very good rookie year after he did his season in Australia. Mm-hmm. So that's really the first time I think that's played out well. The other kid who did it, uh, RJ Hampton has not had the same kind of success. No. Um, so I think that's, and, and I, I've got no sense that going overseas is something that they're strongly considering. That could all change, but that would be the, to me, if you're looking for a professional opportunity that makes sense, that's the one that makes the most sense because there aren't any rule changes that need to happen. And he could be paid a lot more mm. than even G league kids are theoretically. Um, if you were running a team overseas, you might think it's worth your while to pay a Monty Bates seven, 800 grand for the publicity you get because yeah. he's a Monty Bates. He's not, you know, he's not Jonathan Kaminga, <laughs> you know, um, so that, to me, is a possibility, but again, I think very unlikely. And then the other option is he just sits out the year from competitive basketball entirely and trains. I think that's the least likely of any options, but theoretically it's there. So that's the playing field. And if you're writing an article or you're talking about what you think is going to happen, and you think that the answer is that he's going to play professionally in the, in the United States of America next year, if you're not dealing, if you're not confronting with and coming up with an answer for the age element here, forget the salary, forget the money stuff. Yeah. Um, frankly, you're full of shit. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about because a lot of dominoes have to fall in place for that to happen. Could they? 
Theoretically, yes. Will they? I have my doubts. Because mm-hmm. I just don't think I don't think the NBA is interested in the ramifications of that. So that's my two cents. I would, and again, the fact that you've had I heard earlier this week from two different people. Again, that yeah, people in the basketball community in this state think who know what they're talking about think that he's likely to play at MSU. And I'm also going to note something else that I don't think we've touched on here. Last week, I forget the kid's name. There was a, a I think a college kid um, who does interviews periodically. I've seen a couple of others that he's done with prospects or players in the state. And he did a long form one. It was probably at least 20 minutes, half hour with Pierre Brooks, who we haven't talked about much here, but Pierre Brooks is having an all time great senior year of high school. At Detroit Douglas, uh-huh. he is. He was averaging last I looked. Now the, the other night he had his low point total of the season. He only put up twenty points and seven boards. He's posted a triple double already this season. He was averaging before that game, I think thirty six points a game. Oh my goodness! Yeah, he's been killing it. And most games he's posting double doubles. And as I said, he's at least one triple double with points, rebounds, and assists. But in any of so he's off to a He's just having a fantastic year, and I think he's going to be really good. I've said that all along, and I certainly have not changed my view. Mm-hmm. I think he's going to be really, really good. But in the midst of this long interview, he was asked about Amani, and it wasn't something that was dwelled on. He just kind of said it, matter of fact, that he expects Amani to reclassify and to be at Michigan State. Now, that's, you know, you take that for what it's worth, but I'll tell you, oftentimes, the kids know a lot more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. That could have been just him talking off the cuff and what he assumes will happen. Um, but I, I would throw that in the mix as well if you're looking for tea leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, so to wrap all this up, the, the stuff that you saw out there today on the Internet, to call it garbage is to dignify it. It's worth nothing. Mm-hmm. A decision will get made sometime between April and August, I suspect, and I don't know when. And if I if I had to bet, if I had to bet, I would put my money on his being in East Lansing. I'm not saying it's 100%. I'm not saying I think it's a lock. But when I look at the totality of it, that's the conclusion I reach. Mm-hmm. And I'm, believe me, I'm, I'm trying as best I can to not let my bias as to what I would like to see happen, happen. I think the facts support that as well. Mm-hmm. As they are. Yeah. And I've, I saw some Twitter stuff in, after the uh, Ohio state game, he was tweeting like, wow. I mean, he's paying attention, paying close attention to what Michigan state's doing this year. Uh, well, his, his father was quoted while they were off to the really rough start. His father was quoted in an article as saying that, it was killing him that he wanted to be out there helping his friends. By that, he, I'm assuming he was referring mostly to Gabe and Rocket, who he's very close with, particularly Gabe, who he works out with a lot. And they basically grew up in the same area. Mm. Um, so, yeah, he does care. Yeah. He's, he's engaged. I, I don't think that's news to anybody. Okay. Well, um that's a little bit of relief heading into next year. Um, but as we look at this year, uh, kind of a unique situation we're in here, Rod, where we're bubble yeah. watching. Um, <laughs> yep. it's been a while. 
uh, for Michigan State. And Michigan comes into this one 18 and 2, 13 and 2 in the league, uh, number two in Ken Palm, six on offense, four in defense. Uh, yeah. What's no. your what's your kind of your take on on Michigan to this point? Look, they've surprised me. I think we had them seventh mm-hmm. or eighth, and they finished ninth last year and lost key guys. You know, so there's a reason for that. But I, I will say this: every new player they added has surprised significantly to the upside. So. They had a point guard in Mike Smith, a grad transfer from Columbia. Mm-hmm. I am very skeptical of mid-major guys transferring up. This guy put up a lot of points in Columbia, but he was the only guy on a really bad team in the Ivy League. I've seen guys with those kind of profiles fail miserably. Yeah. They, they almost always do. you know. And so I was very skeptical that he would be an answer. He has been. He's been really good, exactly what they needed. If they did not have him, this team would have been in real trouble. He is that significant. Mm-hmm. I don't think they have another answer at the point. Their freshman, Zeb Jackson, is clearly not ready to help. Um, and if you got to play Eli Brooks at the point, that you lose twice because he's not as good at the point, and then you lose him for what he brings off the ball. Mm-hmm. So they would have really struggled. So that was a big addition. Then they add Chaundy Brown, another grad transfer from Wake Forest, a guy who had been a fairly big-time recruit, but kind of disappointed, especially as a shooter at Wake Forest. He comes in, proves to be maybe the best sixth man in the conference. He's certainly in the discussion. Has been great defensively, has shot the ball well, been exactly what they needed mm-hmm. as a perimeter reserve off the bench. He could play you know, either the two or the three for them because he's 6'5", so he has some versatility. He's been really good. And then maybe the biggest, well, definitely, literally the biggest of all, Hunter Dickinson, their 7'1 freshman center. I liked Hunter Dickinson. I saw him in AAU. I was impressed. At the time, I remember saying this, um, I thought he was a more mobile Isaac Haas. Not quite as big as Haas, but close. Takes up a lot of space. At seven one, and I don't know what his weight is listed. I'm going to guess he's about 280, 270, something like that. He's a big boy, mm. but moves better than Haas did. Doesn't move great, but moves better than Haas did. And every time I saw him, I saw him play. I think three times. Um, he was it was clear to see. All right, this guy can score. He's got good touch around the rim. He's obviously huge, so he can just use his body to create space. I didn't have any difficulty believing that he would be effective offensively pretty early on. I had two big questions. I didn't know about his conditioning, and I wondered about him defensively. I wondered how is he going to handle it when he's putting pick and rolls? How is he going to handle it when he's got to guard guys who can take him away from the rim and could hit threes? Those were open questions. I think the conditioning thing has been answered definitively. He's averaging between 25 and 26 minutes a game. So he's been great there. And defensively, he has struggled on occasion with guys who could stretch him a little bit. But he's been pretty good in pick and roll, and he's been very effective as a low post defender. So consequently, those things being answered mostly positively have allowed his offense to really shine through. And he's been great. I mean, he's been 
everything this team never had under John Beeline. He is a low post weapon. Mm-hmm. And it changes the way they play because he also passes the ball extremely well. So if you're doubling him, you're collapsing on him, he has the ability to find shooters, and boy, do they have shooters. So you take all three of those guys who, to me, were question marks and were going to have to play big roles, and they've all stepped up and been better than I think anybody could have reasonably anticipated. That's why they're where they are. And then you add to that that Wagner's improved somewhat as a shooter for sure. Um, I think Brooks is having a solid season. Isaiah Livers is having his best season. You know, yet, yet Davis and Johns have been serviceable off the bench. That's enough, mm. you know, and they're coming into this game having gotten blasted by Illinois last night. They beat by 23 at home when Illinois did not have Desunmu. So that's not great, but that's only their second loss of the season. Mm. So this is, clearly been the best team in the Big Ten. I think that's beyond debate. That They're taking dings and arrows from some people because they played this game with their scheduling, um, and they should. Yeah, I think it's a joke, frankly, that they were able to take a full week off and just practice. Right. Michigan State they, didn't do that. Yeah, they were practicing on Sunday and scheduled to play Illinois on Thursday after their layoff. Right. And they decided that there was a phone call with Illinois and the Big Ten, and it got postponed. And that's right. The the reasoning was was some, you know, something along the lines of preparation. And it's here's like, okay. The, well, nobody the else is doing that. That's right. But the problem is, this year with what's going on, no conference and other schools are going to be very hesitant to insist that you play or to make you look bad. Um, if you're claiming that it's because of safety concerns. And that was kind of their thing is, well, we want them to be safe when they play and they need this time to get physically acclimated. Okay. But other schools didn't do that. Michigan yeah. State sure didn't do it. So there's some of that. There's also the fact that they're not going to end up playing a full schedule. They had three games canceled. Now, those three games were against the bottom end of the conference. So you figure they're likely to have won those games. However, my my response to that is if they treated coming back the way that Michigan State did, for example, might they have lost a couple of those games they ended up winning when they came back against better opposition? Mm-hmm. I think that's an unanswerable question, but it's possible. Regardless, if we're if we're just evaluating it on the merits of what we've actually seen on the floor, they have clear cut been the best team in the Big Ten. They present a tremendous challenge to Michigan State. Yeah. And let me just add this to the equation. Um, you know, if you take, if Michigan State's, or Michigan's considered the, the best team, you take the, the next four best teams, um, the schedule has been extremely good for Michigan in the sense that they've only yes. played those teams one time. All, all yeah. those top four teams where, yep. where Michigan State has played three of them twice, and then they also play Michigan twice. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. They've had a really, really, as it turns out, you know, at the, after the season's over and we look at everybody and how good everybody is, they actually had it really easy. I saw something, I believe it was yesterday or today, maybe yesterday, that I think suggested Illinois ended up with the easiest Big Ten schedule and Michigan was the fourth easiest. So that would support what you're suggesting. 
I saw well, Ken Palm has has Illinois as the easiest and Michigan is the second easiest. Okay, but, maybe but that was that. There's a little bit. I mean, the, part of that problem though is if you're that good and you take you yourself out yourself. of the equation, yeah, you don't That's play right. yourself. That's right. But That's who, true. you know the good teams that you play. Well, even if you added a fifth team, um, you know, to to which would maybe be Wisconsin. Well, they beat Wisconsin twice. But out of the next five teams, you only played one yeah. of them twice. Now, you know, the fact of the matter is, Michigan and Illinois didn't make their schedules. That, As I say, these, ga- yeah. these games that Michigan are missing, those are easy games. They wouldn't have changed the fact that they had an easy schedule, but they also, it's not like, well, they had this easy path because tough games that they were supposed to play were omitted. That's not the case. No, so no that's true. Yeah. It's on the Big Ten office, but, you know, look, there have been years. I mean, Indiana, people, <laughs> I always think of the 2015-16 season as the clear-cut best team in the Big Ten was Michigan State. They they flamed out in the tournament, of course, but in the regular season, then they went on to win the Big Ten tournament. They had indicated to me, far and away, they were the best team in the conference. They were the team that people thought had a chance to win it all, to reach a Final Four. The fact that they didn't do it in the tournament doesn't change that reality. Who won the Big Ten that year? Indiana. And Indiana won it largely down to scheduling. Mm. They had an easier slate than Michigan State did, and so they won the regular season title. You know, sometimes it happens. But I I don't want to get too hung up on it because the fact of the matter is, unlike that Indiana team, I don't think this Michigan team has backed into anything. We'll take shots at them because of who they are. Mm. You know, they're punks from down the road. But they've earned it in my mind. They are the best team in the Big Ten in my opinion. I've seen them do it often enough that on the court, which is the only thing we can truly evaluate, they've been the best. Mm. Uh, now, if it's true that the winner will be crowned with winning percentage, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there. I mean, if Michigan State wins these next two and Illinois beats I, or Ohio State, they will have a higher winning percentage in Michigan. That's right. That's so, right. Mean, That's the only way. Would that be ironic that Illinois is rooting for Michigan State? <laughs> yeah, it would. But you know what's been funny about that, and I know I, I saw a lot of Michigan fans picked up on this. Brad Underwood was really running his mouth before that Michigan game. And Michigan fans were kind of, well, they not kind of, they were just outraged by this. So like, why isn't he spending time talking about what Michigan State did to his best player? That's the, you know, that he should be focusing his ire on them when instead he was taking a lot of shots at the scheduling stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's funny. <laughs> I mean, he's right. If I was an Illinois you know? fan, I'd be pissed about this because I would. I mean, uh, imagine how the season would have went down if you got if Illinois having just spanked them, you got to play them three weeks earlier, them coming off a break, and you get a win right. then. Then you know you're only a game different from them right. the rest of the way. It changes the dynamic. Yeah. You're right about that. But you know, the other thing too is. This is always, we, we are in this era and have been for a while where because of the sheer size of the league, even though we've now moved to 20 games, it still doesn't change the fact that we are dealing with unbalanced schedules. Yeah. And, and this is going to happen. That's why I think in the last, say, 10 years, the Big Ten tournament has increased in importance. Not every year, 
for a lot of years, that tournament has actually kind of sorted things out and meant something. Mm-hmm. You know, I go back the first time I, I thought it really meant something to me as a Michigan State fan was that game in 2012 against Ohio State where they had split the regular season games. They had both finished in a three-way tie for the regular season title along with Michigan, but they, they ended up in the finals against each other and Michigan State won um, without Brandon Dawson. Uh, that was, to me, and that was just a bloodbath. That game was just blood and guts. It was fantastic. Um, so maybe the most competitive Big Ten game I've ever seen. Um, and and that, to me, was kind of the start of it. But there have been a lot of years since then where the Big Ten tournament's kind of been a decider. 2016, I mentioned. Michigan State was, in my mind, absolutely the best team in the Big Ten, no question. They didn't win the regular season title because of scheduling. Well, what could they do? they go out and win the tournament. Mm-hmm. They did, you know, because you can't – that you can't win by scheduling. <laughs> you got to just go win the games, you know, and Michigan State did it. So there have been years where that's the case, and Illinois will have that chance even if they end up coming up short um, in the regular season. They'll have a chance to take care of it in the tournament, and so will Ohio State, so will Iowa and everybody else. Yeah. So it's not like this is the end, but, yeah. Anyway, it's been kind of amusing to see the Michigan fan base get get tied up in knots around Brad Underwood <laughs> this past, these past few days. It's, it really has been funnier for me. Mm. And why isn't he coming at Izzo more? Well, think about that. Yeah, Maybe I, think, he's got a point. He, I would be. Pissed I, about I think that. the bottom line is that he understands that it wasn't there was an intent. Mm-hmm. It was a basketball play that went badly from a young guy who doesn't kind of know his own body very well. You know, that's what happened. That's why he's not infuriated. What good is it going to do him? Look, every all the other Big Ten teams got 20 games in, with the exception of the handful that would have played Michigan. Right. You know, and right. if, if you didn't want to play that Thursday game, it wasn't it, it wasn't that you were just postponing it. No, you wound up canceling a Penn State away game. Because of it, because you could have put one of those games in the slot that you had to put Illinois. Yep. So, you know, and there's look at the gauntlet Michigan State's running right now, and and they were able to make games up earlier. Well, they this could have is, made this up these my, games if they wanted. This is to. my point. It, it represents. There's no way around it. If you're a Michigan fan, and I want to be clear about this, I'm not saying that it means they don't deserve it. They don't deserve the title because I don't believe that. I think they've proven they're the best team, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But you also cannot say that your program didn't do everything it could to make sure that they were in the best possible position to win whatever games they were going to play, that they kind of manipulated that. Yeah, Michigan State did not do that. Michigan State had two days of practice coming off COVID. And then they were playing a goddamn game on the road in New in New Jersey. And Ju- Juwan That's Howard came, you know, came out at the when he was hired. Said we'll play anyone, anywhere, anytime, which is kind of the motto that Michigan State has. That that doesn't jive. What that what happened this year does not jive with that. No, statement. it doesn't. And and again, it was something that nobody was going to refuse them exactly because you can't do it in this environment. If a program says. We believe it's in our student athletes' best interest to delay these games, cancel these games, whatever. That's what's going to happen. No, the conference is not going to come in and say, "Wait a minute." 
Right. I, I can't imagine the conference was thrilled. You no, know, I'm sure I, privately they were unhappy with this, but it's what happened. So, whatever. Mm-hmm. All right. So, uh, let's see. Offense, they're sixth. Um, there really isn't a weakness here other than getting to the line. Yeah, that's the only thing. They don't get to the line very much. When they do, they shoot it really well, like 77% as a team. Mm -hmm. But um, they don't get there much, and they're a mediocre offensive rebounding team, which itself is a change from the beeline era when they were always a god-awful one. Mm -hmm. I think they're like 111. Yeah. So not not good, but not terrible. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, 38.8% from three, that's pretty high. 37 uh, in two point percentage, seventy one yep. in turnover percentage. Yep. So, uh, you know, on defense, it's even better. Fourth, and they're fourth in effective field goal percentage against. Number two against the twos, um, and number forty nine in block percentage. Fifty eighth in defensive rebounding, uh, and they don't foul people. Right. Yeah. It's it's really it is what I mean. You look at their profile. Well, they're where they deserve to be. Yeah. Um, not a lot of weaknesses, you know. Um, I think the defense doesn't surprise me so much because that was Juwan Howard's forte as an NBA assistant. He was that was the role he had with the Miami Heat in the last few years. He was there was kind of, he was kind of in charge of their of their defense. And um, so I'm not surprised. And he's changed some things. They don't play it the same way that the late period beeline teams did. They do some things differently, but it's just as effective. And, boy, they're, they're really good against twos. And that's the name of the game. When you're number two in the country inside the arc on defense, you're legit. Mm-hmm. You're legit because that that is the stuff that is probably going to show up for you game in, game out and mean that you are going to be most effective in consistently holding teams down, and that's what they've been. Yep. So, really good. Uh, the relatively slow-paced at 234. Um, yeah, especially that's, on that's defense. mostly due to the defense. Yeah. It's mostly due to the defense. If you look at their pace, offense, they're, they're kind of middling. Defense, they're really slow. They're in the 300s. And so what that means is they're playing such good positional defense, they don't trap or look to force turnovers. They, they will occasionally bust out a three-quarter press, but it's it's a man press. It's designed to um, just eat up clock. They're not looking to really force. I guess it's not always man. I've seen them throw some zone too, but it, it's not a hard, heavy trapping press. They're not looking to turn you over. They're looking to force you to eat up clock, and that's what they do consistently mm-hmm. is teams have to use a lot of clock to get a look off or a shot off and a good look if they can get one at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Anything else on kind of like a high level overview of? No, I mean uh, I think we've hit it. They yeah. just aren't. They're a good defensive rebounding team too. You didn't mention that, but they're they're solid there. Um, they don't give up a ton of second chances. I mean, they just there's not a lot of obvious weaknesses. Mm. Uh, so for their starters, Mike Smith is uh, the grad transfer you mentioned from Columbia, five yeah. eleven point guard. Um, He's shooting 46 from the floor, 49 from three, although not a ton of attempts, but um, 81 from the line. Uh, he leads them with an assist, five assists per game, uh, 8.6 points per game. Yeah, his 
his counting numbers don't touch what Xavier Simpson was doing last year. But I I wonder, and I think I said this in the notes, there might be a case to be made that he's actually been an improvement. I, mm-hmm. One thing I think, it, it, earlier in his career you could say, well, you have to take into account that Xavier Simpson is a guy who can just eliminate people with his defense. That wasn't true of him as a senior. I thought yeah. he... He was riding on his reputation. I didn't think he was great defensively. Smith's been good. He's not equal to the best of Simpson in his career, but he's probably equal at least to what Simpson was last year. And offensively, yeah, the counting stats aren't there, but he's a much more efficient player than Simpson was. So I really do, I think there's a case to be made that they're better off Mm -hmm. with with him, which I never, Ever, ever would have believed was possible. I really thought this is going to be just another one of the endless line of transfer up guys who don't really pan out. And that's the thing. Michigan needed him to be what he's been, to be a heavy minutes guy who essentially solves that point guard problem. Usually the most you can hope for from a guy in his circumstance, his profile, is that they can come in and eat up some rotation minutes and be okay. Mm. Like Purdue last year had the Proctor kid yeah. who ate up some minutes and was okay, but he wasn't an answer like Smith has been. So this is, it's probably the single most, either he or Dickinson, have been, they've been the two biggest surprises to me for how much better they've been than what I expected from them. And that's why Michigan is where they are, bottom line. Mm. Uh, and then Eli Brooks, 6'1", senior, 8.8 points a game, 40 from the floor, 36 from three, 94 from the line, um, and a very good defender. He's their best individual defender on the perimeter. I don't think there's much doubt about that. Offensively, you know, you look at those numbers, they're not eye-popping, but they're solid. Mm-hmm. And And he's a guy that very easily in a game can hurt you if you're not you know, if you're focused on other players and he's getting good looks from deep, he's a good enough shooter that he can really do some damage. So he's just a nice guy filling a role for this team, an important role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Franz Wagner, 6'9", sophomore, 12.8 points a game, 6.4 rebounds, uh, tied for second on the team and assisted just under three a game. Um, shooting thir- 51 from the floor, 37 from three, 84 from the line. You know, there were a number of people, well, I shouldn't say a number of people. There's one guy in particular, the guy who does the UM Hoop site, who was touting Wagner as a first-team All-Big Ten guy in the preseason. I was very skeptical of that because I felt he had not shown a sufficient ability to shoot to be a guy at that level. And I questioned his defense, um, his defensive consistency at least. I don't think he's going to be a first-team all-league guy. Mm. But and early this season, when I saw him in the non-conference, I didn't think he'd improved much. That narrative has changed in conference play. He's had a really good season. He didn't play well last night, but he's had a really good season. When you watch him play, you know the, the shooting numbers are obviously much improved. Um. He is such a tough cover because at 6'9", with a good handle, he's able to get shots off around the rim where he might penetrate 
and it looks like you've kind of kept him away from the rim, but his length enables him to still get a shot off, and he just hits tough shots. Mm. He hits shots at angles that you don't see a lot of other guys making. His length has helped him be pretty effective defensively. I still think he's a little overrated by the Michigan fan base in that area, but hes I'll admit he's improved. He's been steadier than he used to be. And he's gotten better as a rebounder, too. Mm-hmm. So, overall, he's been pretty damn good. Um, and then Isaiah Livers, 6'8", senior, um, who tweaked his ankle a little bit against Illinois. Uh, do we know anything further about that? Yeah, it doesn't look to me like there's an issue. Okay. Uh, Juwan, even in the aftermath of the game, Juwan Howard was saying he wasn't worried about it. And then I, I believe I saw that Livers was doing the – press conference today so i would expect him to play mm-hmm. 14.2 points a game 6.2 rebounds uh which is by far a career high yeah he's more shooting, than two re- more than two rebounds a game better than he's ever averaged he's shooting 48 from the floor 45 from three and 88 from the line yeah he's he's just a better version of what he's been for the last three years he's been this kind of shooter and he's been healthy that's helped too mm. uh he's been this kind of shooter pretty much all along at Michigan. So that's not new. But the fact that he's upped his rebounding from four a game to 6.2 a game to me is is important because that's been the knock on him. The knock on him is, hey, Livers is not a dirty work guy. He doesn't want to get in there and mix it up, um, despite the fact that his body would suggest that he'd be capable of doing that. Um he has changed that. And I think, I think he is an example of a guy who has really benefited from the coaching change because in the, under the previous regime, I don't know that he would have done that. Mm. John Beeline would have had more tolerance for him not sticking his nose in there and becoming a better rebounder. You know, so I think it's helped him become a more well-rounded player. He's also gotten a little better defensively. Still not great as an individual defender, but good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy when you look at it, the way his game is, but his size is basically the same as uh, Marble. Mm-hmm. I mean... Yeah, I don't think he's quite as strong as Julius, but you're right. There's not a lot of difference. Mm-hmm. But he's always been this way. I mean, that more than 50% of his shots come from deep. Mm-hmm. So you're that size and that's how you play. Okay, that, that betrays something. But again, his when you can average... Six plus rebounds a game. I, I got to admit, you've made a change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Hunter Dickinson, seven one freshman, who's just been fantastic by far and away the uh, Big Ten freshman of the year. Fourteen point yeah. four points a game, seven point seven rebounds, team high one and a half blocks. Uh, he leads them in all three categories. Sixty um, percent from the floor, seventy six from the line. So it's not like you can just follow him. Um, right. He's not right. a big three point shooter. That's the one thing. He's 0 for 4 on the season. Uh, he's a problem. And again, he, he can be, he's shown some vulnerability occasionally. Not a lot. Occasionally, guys have been able to make him pay away from the basket. Um, when Minnesota, it was Minnesota that beat gave him their first loss, right? Yeah. Um, Liam Robbins did some damage against him. Yeah, he had 22 Wasn't points. Able, yeah, when he wasn't able to cover him away from the basket. Um, that hasn't happened a lot. 
And as it stands, Michigan State really doesn't have personnel unless they play Joey Hauser at the five who are capable of doing that anyway. So it's kind of a moot point. Um, you know, he's got a chance to lead them in three major categories, points, rebounds, blocks. As a freshman, that's pretty damn good. Um, I mean, he's a load, bottom line, and he's coming off arguably his worst game of the season. Mm-hmm. He did not play well. He was in some foul trouble, and Coburn at times really taught him a lesson physically, um, which is the first time I've seen that happen. I mean, this kid handled Garza physically. Now, that was a little different because he actually plays with Garza in the offseason. They're both from the D.C. area. So he knows Garza. That might have helped him. As it turned out, he doesn't, I don't think he knows Coburn. <laughs> and the, the half of basketball that I saw, Coburn wasn't finishing particularly well, but man, physically, neither was Dickinson. And physically, Coburn had the advantage. It was clear. That I, I, you probably couldn't say that any other time this season mm-hmm. with Dickinson. Yeah, he's on, one for eight in that game, six points. Right. Uh, and then. Off the bench, you mentioned him earlier, Chandy Brown, 6'5", grad transfer from Wake Forest. Um, and he's been just a huge bonus for them, too. 7.9 points a game, 20 minutes, um, playing great defense, 47 from the floor, 39 from three, 59 from the line. Um, he, he doesn't play exactly the same way, and they rely on him for less offensively, but he's really, to me, kind of like a um, more efficient version of Char- what Charles Matthews was for a couple of years there mm-hmm. from Michigan. Um, just a great pickup. And again, a guy I was very skeptical about because his shooting numbers at Wake Forest were not good. And he's come in and been a real weapon for them. And that's been a bonus because, again, the defense has been outstanding. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you couldn't really ask for more in a reserve than he's given them. Great addition. Uh, and then Austin Davis, 6'10", redshirt senior, 5.8 points a game, 2.9 rebounds in 12 minutes. Um, shoot, uh, 70 from, 70% from the floor, 53% at the line though. Yeah. You know, it's a credit to him and, and this really started last year and then it's continued this season. It's a credit to him that he has made himself with the assistance of his coaches, of course into a guy who is a functional, I would even say good backup center mm-hmm. in this league. You know, Michigan needs him. Dickinson's been fantastic, but he's playing about 25, 26 minutes a night. You need somebody to relief pitch a little bit, and Davis has been that. If Davis had to play 20 minutes, it's a problem because he's one of these guys that I think the longer he's on the floor, the more his weaknesses show up and the the less of an edge you get from him being out there. But when you limit his his minutes, he's proven to be pretty effective. He's one of the least athletic guys you're ever going to find at the Big Ten level. But he's strong, reasonably big, and he's developed a very nice low post game. His footwork, his touch, obviously shooting 70% from the floor, he finishes, right? Mm-hmm. Um all those things have become really, really positive weapons for him. Defensively, he could struggle at times, and that's why I say it's kind of diminishing returns the longer you have to play him. But I think his minutes are just about right. 
12 minutes a night, that's not too much. You're going to get, you're probably most nights, you're going to get a win from him, from his minutes, as opposed to a push or a loss. Mm. And combine that with the fact that, you know, then Dickinson plays the rest of those minutes and he's clearly winning his minutes. That's a hell of a thing for Michigan at the five. Mm. Uh, and then Brandon Johns, a six, seven junior, 3.9 points a game, 2.1 rebounds in about 10 minutes. Um, shooting yeah, 55, little, 50 and 80. Yeah. I, those numbers are really good. Those shooting numbers are by far the best of his career. I'm a little bit surprised and I, I I'm not locked into them enough to have a real good feel for why this is the case. I thought he might play a little bit more, but I guess the way you look at it, they don't need him to play much at the five, which they did the two previous years. Mm -hmm. With Dickinson and and Davis, they've kind of got that covered. They haven't had to go small ball five very much, which he would be capable of doing. And then you look at the the forward spots, you know, Livers and, and Wagner, you want those guys playing as much as you can. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't left a lot of minutes for Brandon Johns, but man, those efficiency numbers are nice. And he's another guy along with Livers that I think in a general sense has benefited from the coaching change because I sort of felt like he was becoming lost under Beeline that freshman year. I just, I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. I didn't see him being a, a good fit. And the last two years, the fact that he's become a guy who will battle you physically is a big credit to Jawan Howard and his staff because that was the knock on Brandon Johns throughout his high school career and even into his freshman year at Michigan that he was a guy who really didn't want to do the dirty work. And now he's become a guy who's pretty effective at that. Mm. Uh, and just like as a broad overview of the bench, they're the – they use their bench like less than any other Big Ten team. They're three nineteen in the country in bench minutes. Yeah, um, yeah, so they're really working their starters. It's it's primarily Chandy Brown and and Davis. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the two guys you get. Johns for ten minutes a night. Terrence Williams, who's a freshman who showed some flashes early and has kind of hit the wall, um, hasn't even played every game. He's, he's had, do not, did not play three times in, in the conference season. So his role has shrunk as well. Yeah. Um, Zeb Jackson's played a little bit, but again, same deal. Role has shrunk in Big Ten play, doesn't always get in the game. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, they, they rely heavily on their starters. Um, but, you know, with their starters playing the way they have, I can understand it. Mm hmm. You know, and I, that's why Chandy Brown is so valuable, though, because he could spot minutes for Brown. He could spot minutes. I'm sorry, spot minutes for um, uh, Brooks. He could spot minutes for Wagner, for Livers. Yeah. He can get all. And then in turn, when he does that, Brooks can give a few minutes of relief at the point for um, for uh, Smith, the point guard yeah. for Smith. Um, so that's a big deal that you've got a guy at that size that can either directly or via domino effects get you that relief for everybody but your five spot. And then you got Austin Davis to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's those two guys really do the, give them the lion's share of whatever bench minutes they do need. Yeah. Uh, so we look at the keys, Rod. Um, guard the arc. Um, Michigan – 
isn't like a Maryland team or uh, like Indiana or Maryland uh, where they're shooting like crazy, but they're 19.5 attempts a game. Um, but they shoot it and, really and well. Really efficient. You know, 39% from three. Um, obviously, everybody knows Dickinson has been a load inside. We know that guy, a guy like Wagner can also score effectively inside the arc. Um, but I don't think that matters. I think the game plan is exactly what it's been mm-hmm. for Michigan State, which is you have to start defensively with the premise that you are going to limit what the other team does from three and, and go from there. So if that means that Hunter Dickinson is getting a lot of one-on-one opportunities in the post, that's the way it's going to be. Mm. And I think you play him the way they did Trace Jackson Davis, the way they did Liddell. You know, most of these big guys they've seen lately, all of them really, because Maryland doesn't really have a legitimate five. Um, Michigan State needs to rotate guys in, play physically, bang with them, see what happens. Because uh, if you if you are doubling, which I don't believe there's any chance they'll do, or even if you're digging down aggressively, this kid is a really really good passer. He will make you pay, and and that's what Michigan State can't afford. Mm-hmm. They've got to make every three contested, and then just limit the ones that Michigan attempts as best they can. That that to me is where the defensive key is, as it always is this season. So. Wh- how do you think they're going to play this on the perimeter? I mean, I know in the second game against Minnesota, where they where Minnesota, you know, they lost to Minnesota initially, and then Minnesota beat them, and they put Kelshier on um, Franz Wagner, which was kind of what Patino sort of credited um, a lot of the win behind. Yeah, do you think you roll with the small ball lineup again? Where you got Henry, Gabe, Langford, and Rocket? You you could. You could. Here's here's the question that you're faced with. Um, Bogner's the guy of that group you gotta be the most worried about in terms of dynamism. Mm. You know? So the the obvious solution is, well, Aaron Henry's your best defender, right? But the risk you run there is you put Aaron Henry on him, maybe Aaron Henry ends up in some foul trouble. And then you don't have him offensively and you're really hurting, right? So that's the risk. It might be, I think Aaron would be safer guarding livers. You still need someone guarding livers because he's obviously their second leading scorer. He's a dangerous guy. But livers, I think, presents less likelihood of being able to get Aaron in foul trouble. Mm -hmm. So maybe what they do is they put Aaron on him. Maybe you put Josh Langford. On, on Wagner. He's given up a little bit of size, but anybody Michigan State has is going to give up some inches. Yeah. You know, Josh is still whatever, 6'5. He's got a shot at hanging with Wagner. Mm-hmm. And then that leaves you Gabe Brown, probably if you started Gabe, which I don't know if they're going to do. If they went small ball, you could play Gabe on, um, on, uh, Brooks. Uh, Brooks, and then whoever your starting point guard is is on Smith. If they don't go that way, and they start, I wouldn't be surprised based on the way he played yesterday if maybe Malik Hall gets a, another shot mm-hmm. at starting. If he does, then Malik Hall is probably your guy, I would think, who starts out guarding livers. Um, and maybe, maybe Aaron does start out on Wagner. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see, but I would, 
I would think what they're going to do is what we've seen from them lately, which is Aaron Henry doesn't necessarily start on the most dynamic player, but he's going to finish there. Yeah. They kind of manage it, get to the second half, and if it's competitive at that point, then Aaron, Aaron's got fouls to give. Then Aaron is going to start guarding whomever that guy is. Mm-hmm. And we've seen him guard every, we've seen him guard point guards to fives yeah. during this stretch. You know, he has literally done that. He's guarded point guards and then he was guarding EJ Liddell down the stretch against Ohio State. So yeah. that's probably what we'll see how it all works out and how, what the starting lineup is, man. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's going to be interesting. Um, so the second key, paint offense. Again, the same thing we talk about. Um, Michigan's a really good defensive team against twos. They've got a good block percentage, and then on top of that, they just play sound positional defense. They they get you in, in spots where you're having to take shots you don't want to take. That's the key to a great, consistent defense. We should know that because that's what Michigan State does almost every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Michigan is doing that this year. Regardless, you have to play inside out. It's the only chance you've got. And not just against Michigan, against anybody. We know this now. If Michigan State doesn't get some level of paint production offensively, they can't win. Mm. And I would say that's true of almost any team. That's just a truism in basketball. You know, but where that line is, how much you need is debatable. But you have to have something established to make the defense respect you. Otherwise, the defense can just run you off the three-point line consistently because they don't have to worry about anything you do inside. Mm. So this is a real test. You know, Aaron Henry's got to be Aaron Henry, but it's going to take more than that. You're going to need – I want to see Malik Hall being as aggressive as he was early in that game. Um, Joey Hauser, a little more of those two post moves he showed. Um, you know, those guys need to be contributing. Josh, hopefully Rocket, you know, maybe doing more penetration wise than we've seen. Somehow, some way, point production in the paint has to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then turnovers. Yeah, I did a really good job against IU. And I mean, it was horrible early and then they ended up with only nine for mm-hmm. the game. We really didn't even focus on it yesterday in the post game, but that was a big key that they weren't giving away possessions in the second half. Uh, it's one, one of the reasons why things looked at least marginally better offensively in the second, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, than in the first, which was a clunker. Um, but I, obviously in this game, look, Michigan is not a team that generates a lot of turnovers. They don't pressure you that way. But if Michigan State is kicking it around of their own volition, you got a real problem. Because you just, you can't afford to be leaving possessions on the table. You know, you have to have the maximum amount of opportunities to score to have a shot at pulling the upset. I, I believe that's true. So a big differential here. This team, this Michigan team is pretty good in minimizing mistakes. They're not a beeline level team. They're good. They're not great. I think they're in the seventies, right? In turnover percentage nationally. So, yeah. you know, so they're top 20% nationally in that category. But we were used to beeline teams being a top 10 team nationally, you know, like elite. And they're not that. They will make the occasional mistake. Michigan State just can't let there be a big gap. 
And then uh, the fourth key, Bingham. You yeah, mentioned I, it in the, the post game the other day, but yeah, this is a big one for him. I think he's their best hope for a guy who could consistently bother Dickinson mm-hmm. and frustrate him. Markey played, I'm going to say, the best defensive game of the season from him last night against Trace Jackson Davis. He had three blocks, and he was instrumental. Jackson Davis did get a lot of shot attempts, but I think two or three of his five came against Bainham, and he didn't hit any of them. Marcus Bainham was really good. Um, He is not a perfect matchup for Dickinson because he's given up a ton of size and strength, weight and strength, I should say. But his length is such that maybe he can bother him. And again, last night when that kid was going up against Coburn, that's the first time I've seen him bothered. Mm-hmm. He hasn't been bothered by anybody else I've seen. Even all the big men in this conference, I haven't seen it. He was bothered last night. Now, Kofi Coburn is not Marcus Bainham. Kofi Coburn's got about 80 pounds on Marcus Bainham, at least. That's a big difference. But at times, length can play even if you're giving up a lot of strength. Mm-hmm. We don't know yet what that'll look like. I, I think Michigan State's going to roll. I don't know how much we'll see Kithier in this game because that's a really, that, that physically, that's a rough one. But I would expect we will see Sissoko and Marble a fair amount as well. Their job is going to be to do what they've done in, in recent games, bang on, you know, as they did with Coburn, right? Just yeah. bang on. Bang on him, get this out a little bit, just. The problem is, you know, Dickinson shoots free throws at a high level. So if he's getting to the line, it's not like with Coburn, you know, he'll probably punish you a little more. But I think you have, you still have to do it with the hope that either the officials let some stuff go or that you physically wear him out or frustrate him. Mm. That's, that's really all you can do. But the one guy they've got that I think might be able to actually slow him down possibly is Bingham. It's a big if, but it's the best hope Michigan State has for a guy who could actually guard him. Yeah. And I saw uh, Bingham fronting Trace Daxon Davis yep. quite a few times, maybe three or four times when yep. he got in front of I him. Thought, and I hadn't seen that from him before. I thought, well, you know, Izzo in his post game talked about how, and, and we didn't discuss this yet. Uh, apparently the day that that off day between Maryland and Indiana, Michigan state's guards did not practice at all. Only their bigs practiced. And they apparently spent, uh, it had a very, very intense practice because Izzo talked about having been embarrassed by how the bigs played in the first IU game. Well, we did see a big difference. Yeah. And I thought all of Michigan state guys did a really good job at post entry denial. Mm-hmm. I thought they made it really tough on Indiana's post passers to to get clean entries to Jackson Davis. Now Jackson Davis, I think, from what I saw, probably would insist that they just missed him a lot. But Michigan State made it tough. Markey was definitely part of that. That would be a good place to start in this game. But boy, a seven-one guy with his size, you know, his bulk is tough. He is he is even tougher to really effectively deny. We'll see. Uh, and so then the fifth key, surprise. 
Yeah, and, and here's what I mean by that. We know that it's highly likely that two of Michigan State's top scorers are going to be Aaron Henry and Josh Langford. I mean, that's just how it is, right? Yeah. Um, I think Gabe Brown has settled into being a guy you can pretty consistently count on for something. He might not always hit double digits or have like a 15-point game, but he's going to give you something. Last night he gave him 10 yeah. and a bunch of boards. I think Gabe has proven he can be relied on. They need one other guy, minimum, if they're going to spring the upset. I don't know who that would be or could or will be if it happens. But you got a lot of candidates. Can Joey Hauser have a bust-out game, you know? Mm. Um, did Rocket Watts break through and have another game like he had against Ohio State where he was really, really good? Um, you know, Malik Hall. I mean, there's a does Marcus Bingham score a bunch, you know? There's a lot of guys who could be it. I think from somewhere, Michigan State's got to get that guy, though, mm-hmm. if they're going to win this. I just don't know who it'll be, but they need a surprise from somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Well, any final thoughts heading into this one, Ron? Um, only this, to, to kind of recap where Michigan State is. So you've got these two games against Michigan. I think as long as you are competitive – even if you lose them both, I don't think you really you do your NCAA hopes much, if any, damage. I really believe that. I just don't think they will. Um, so then it's going to come down to the Big Ten tournament, and it seems pretty much a lock that that game is going to be against Rutgers. So you split the season series. Each team won in a blowout at home. This is going to be on a neutral court. I will tell you this, from what I've seen, I am much happier with the idea of facing Rutgers as opposed to Maryland, yeah. who could have been. But it seems highly likely it's going to be Rutgers, the way things look. So, And, and it, there just doesn't seem to be any realistic chance that Michigan State's going to fall out of that 8-9 game. Mm-hmm. Uh, IU's got Purdue, and then they're done, I believe. Um, that would make them seven and twelve, so they would be behind Michigan State at eight and twelve, even if MSU loses these two games. And, and that's really it. I don't think anybody else can catch them. Um, so that's what we're looking at. If you win one of these two games against Michigan, then I think the Big Ten tournament almost certainly does not matter. You're in at that point. Does, um, the, does the net ranking concern you at all? I mean, no. No, it really doesn't because I know where it is, but I think there's a couple things. One, there is some precedent. There have been occasions where teams with that kind of rating or the RPI, which was used previously, have gotten in. And here's the other thing you got to consider. I knew from the start that the, the metric systems that are used, the computer systems, were not going to be as reliable as they typically are. We've talked about yeah. this before. Just the data, the lack of data. And I have to believe the committee is aware of that. So I look at that, and then I look at the resume. And the wins Michigan State has, right now Illinois seems to be back on the one seed line. Ohio State's either a two or a three, depending upon how they close. Mm. Those are So you're talking about two wins against top ten teams nationally, basically. There aren't many teams out there that have that. Michigan State has no bad losses, zero. Yeah, that's the... 
They have played more games and actually, I believe, are somewhere like in the top 10 in terms of win total wins against quad one and quad two teams. In part, that's because everybody they play mm-hmm. fits those two categories almost. You know, almost the entire Big Ten qualifies as that. Um, so, you know, even though the Indiana wins maybe don't look as good as they did because they now don't look like a tournament team, it's still a quality win. Yeah. You know, so was the Rutgers win. And then obviously Ohio State and Illinois. Well, there's, there's five of your wins, you know, um, right there with, uh, with, with those, with those teams, you know, and then obviously they had the two against Nebraska and the one against Penn State, which although Penn State's a quality win. Yeah. Metric system. So really it's only the two Nebraska wins. You know, Duke would be a quality win. Another one, regardless of where they are in, in terms of the tournament picture, it's still a quality win. So I, I think that all of those things are going to help Michigan State. I, I just don't, and I said this the other night, in a year where the Big Ten is as lauded as it is, the idea that they're not going to go at least nine deep in a year where for much of the season they were talking about ten, mm-hmm. I just can't see it. And who jumps Michigan State? Indiana? No. Indiana's not going to have a winning record overall. <laughs> I mean, they there's won't. a lot of pl- teams in the net that don't have winning records above Michigan right. State. So really I think, weird. you know, Penn State's not going to. Minnesota's not going to. Yeah. So where does that, where does that other ninth team come from? There isn't one. So yeah, I mean, I, I think the only way they don't make it in my mind is if they lose the two to Michigan and then they get beat by Rutgers. If that happens, then you got a right to be worried. But even then, I wouldn't say it's a 0% chance they get in. I would mm-hmm. just say that makes it tough. Yeah. Cause you still have to get to, okay, the committee's only going to go eight deep in this league. That might be where it ends up. But, I, you know, to me, it's you got three games, you got to win one. You do that, I, I'm going to be shocked if they don't make it, if they do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, this Michigan uh, game tomorrow at 7. Until then, the Final Four is not on schedule. Are you currently taking care of a disabled family member or friend? Do they have a long-term physical disability? If so, they may qualify for programs that can pay you for your time and care. Help at Home has the experts to assist in getting those services and programs for your love. For a limited time right now, Help at Home is offering a caregiver $2,000 sign-on bonus. Yep, a $2,000 caregiver sign-on bonus. Plus, we still offer weekly pay, overtime pay, pay time off, holiday pay, and we also offer health care benefits. Call Help at Home today at 215-607-2234 or go to Help at Home dot com